Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It's a great pleasure and an honor to welcome Dr. Hal Huggins. He is known by many as the father of mercury-free dentistry. He was trained at the University of Nebraska in 1962, and in 1973, he noticed that mercury toxicity and human health had a connection. He has a Master's of Science at the University of Colorado in Toxicology and Immunology. He is the author of It's All in Your Head, Uninformed Consent, Root Canals, Savior or Suicide, Solving the MS Mystery, Protocols for Amalgam Removal and Detoxification, and Detoxification Revisited. He is a pioneer in the field, and it is my great pleasure and honor to welcome Dr. Hal Huggins to its rainmaking time. Good morning. Well, good morning. Thank you, Kim. That's quite an introduction there. I think I'd like to listen to the program myself. <laughs> I'm delighted to have you on the show. A new dentist that came into my life wants to immediately do a root canal. What's the synchronicity of that coming up before the show? Synchronicity, yeah, it did happen there. And uh, do you believe in coincidences? I definitely accept that coincidences are a function of synchronicity and divine intervention. Yeah, well, there may be a little divine intervention, which means that you just have to work a few more years. (laughs) Because uh, you get things like root canals and, well, the one thing that Weston Price, one of the original people who did a lot of work in root canals, one of the things he kept mentioning is consistently people talked about brain fog and in taking the root canal tooth out, the brain fog would go away. So, yes, you have, by not getting the root canal, you probably don't have to experience firsthand what is meant by brain fog. You're sitting there with my blood chemistry. We're going to hear what you're seeing when you're looking at my blood chemistry of four months ago prior to this revelation. Right. There are normal ranges from the hospitals and the laboratories, normal ranges of blood chemistries, blood ranges, and these values are based on what has been done in that particular hospital or that particular laboratory. And they usually take like a hundred of them and average them together, and that comes out to be normal. Well, in a hospital, why do you go to a hospital? Are you going to a hospital today? This was done at the Life Extension Foundation, and their values are typically higher than most places. They do a ton of research, millions of dollars of research. They're pretty advanced. Yeah, they don't do the blood test. I'm talking about the laboratories that do the blood test. Oh, okay, okay. They farm it out to the hospitals and to the commercial laboratories. Okay. So normal is, if it's done from a hospital, it's where you got the blood drawn uh, at least before the patient died. And that's what you're being compared to. So normal, by definition, includes 95.56% of the population. Well, I've got a clue for you. 95% of the population is not in good health. But we have been led to believe that normal means good health. It isn't. It means like all the rest of the people who are sick. So what we do is look for the ideal, which took a few years to figure out, because when you you remove the... Uh, the challenges, you know, the root canals, the cavitations, the mercury, the nickel crowns, and all this, then the immune system settles down to about the same place in everybody, whether you're red, yellow, black, or white. 
And this is what we use as a standard. Sometimes we have found a point, uh, like with red blood cells. There is a point. And, you know, there's the male range and the female range because the females do this funny thing, so they must be abnormal according to the males who set it up. And uh, it's not. If you remove all those challenges, the male and female range join and can come into a single point. So what I'm doing is looking at not the normal range. I started this back in 1968, studying blood chemistry, and the ranges have moved a lot since then, some of them politically and financially, like cholesterol, and some of them because they have new reagents, and some of them just because people are getting more challenges from dentistry. So like with white blood cells, the range used to be five to 10,000. Now some hospitals go as low as 2,800 and as high as 12,500. Well, in 1976, they came out, the Dental Association uh, patented something called the high copper amalgam. And the high copper amalgam was supposed to keep its mercury within. And what it does, according to studies done in Europe, it uh, releases 50, that's five zero, fifty 50 times more mercury. And that's challenging to the immune system. Your white blood cells are your immune system. So you have them elevate to start with, and then they get tired and they go into the cellar. And that's what we're seeing as normal. So what we are looking for is, with white blood cells, five to 6,000. And you have 7,100 on your uh, white blood cells, oh, which means there is a challenge at that time. This was several months ago, but there was a challenge. And the if you take the white blood cells, there are six different populations, they call them, of white blood cells, six different types that have six different job descriptions. And the point man there is the lymphocyte. And he goes out and says, here's a dead cell, here's a dying cell, here's a splinter, here's something that shouldn't be here. Puts a flag on it, and then the other white blood cells come in, pick it up, and haul it off and dispose of it. Well, your lymphocytes are not dangerous, but they are lower than they, I would expect them to be at uh, with a white cell count of 7,100. Well, who else is in on this war? If we look at a blood chemistry, uh, the globulin is usually there to support the white blood cells if the white blood cells are not as effective as they should be. Because just because you got 7,100 does not mean you got 7,100 good live fighting soldiers. So the globulin should be at about 2.4, and it usually goes up to 2.8, 3, 3.2 if it's got a real war. And if it's tired, it'll drop below 4 point, I mean, below 2.4, and yours has dropped down to 2.2. So this means it's kind of on the tired side. Could that be from dehydration? Uh, not necessarily, because we're talking at grams when we're looking at uh, at the proteins where uh, the other chemistries are in milligrams and there's a thousand to one difference. So if you're dehydrated, you're going to see it more in the other chemistries than you would in the proteins. I mean, okay. these are wheelbarrowfuls of protein. So it takes a lot to move that. But if we look a little bit farther, we find the key. And the key is the phosphorus levels are not indicative of how much phosphorus in your bloodstream, but 
the balance of the endocrine system because the endocrine glands kind of pair up with and against each other. Estrogen, testosterone being one example. All males, all males produce all males, all females produce both. But when the phosphorus level goes up above four, uh, we may have some inflammation running around. Well, do you have anything that would create inflammation? Uh, a tooth that uh, looks like it's possibly pretty probably infected up there is inflammatory, which would make the white cells go up. Oh, well, they're up, which would make the lymphocytes go down because they're working a little bit too hard. Oh, they're down. The phosphorus would go up because of the uh, presence of inflammation. And if it's been chronic, if it's been going on for a while, the globulin will go down. And in the process, the potassium level will be used up, and it will drop down below 4.5. If it's below 4.2, we better start looking cross-eyed at it, and yours is down at 3.9. So if we look at all things together, it does strongly suggest we better do something about that front tooth, or those front teeth, whichever is going on up there, but we need acute x-rays and somebody who is not just anxious to do root canals and implants. Is this not an accurate x-ray? Well, it's just blown up. Right. It's like if you're taking a picture of somebody who is two miles away, it may not be quite as accurate as if he was across the room. Okay. But it does definitely show a shadow up there, which says, uh, let's put the zoom lens on and see what we got going on. Okay. You think I can save this tooth? Do you have a safety deposit box? No. Well, you better get one because that's a good place to save the tooth. <laughs> what does that mean? That means you have to take it out and then put it in the safety deposit box. So then you can save it. But as far as saving it in your mouth is concerned, we have a choice. Either save the tooth or save your life. The choice is yours. Because it's a front tooth, I'm scared. I'll be toothless then you put in a temporary, called a temporary or a treatment partial as soon as it is removed. They're called little flippers. After you've worn one three days, you understand why they're called flippers. You can flip them in and out. But no, you do not want to run around without a tooth up there. Now, a bridge can be put in later on or a permanent partial, but right away you can take the tooth out and give it 10, 15 minutes to get a good clot up there and um, put the other tooth in. So, no, uh, you do not have to run around without front teeth because I certainly wouldn't want to do that, and I doubt that you'd want to do that. So, yes, uh, we do want function. We do want aesthetics, and dentistry has been able to provide this for well over 50 years. I mean, I've been in dentistry for 50 years, and um, 50 years ago we could do that with a very simple procedure. But today, you know, they want to take the tooth out and put an implant in or do a root canal. Well, that's not in the best interest of health, as we have found, by doing uh, DNA evaluations of the bacteria around these sick teeth. In fact, we have one now uh, that's uh, a pre-test. It's called Preview. You just take a little piece of paper. It looks like um, it's called a paper point used in dentistry. Uh, it looks like a toothpick, but it's made out of paper. And you just slip that under the gums around that tooth, so it's it's totally painless thing. It's you know it's like flossing. You just stick it under the gums. Then you bite down on 
a scientific instrument. Um, it's called a popsicle stick. You bite down on that for 60 seconds. And if there is an infection down at the root tip, uh, then it will squirt up, like squeezing an ice cream cone. It will squirt up into the little moat around the tooth, and there is quite enough picked up on that paper point that with the accuracy of DNA, uh, we can find bacteria there. We may find five, six, seven, eight. We may find 10, 20, 30. Well, not from that one, but uh, with the preview test, we test for about five or six bacteria there, and if you've got some of those bacteria, then uh, you know you've got an infected tooth. Then you can take the tooth and run the full view on it and find out the 20, 30, 40, 50 bacteria, whatever, are there that uh, contribute to autoimmune diseases and other diseases of, quote, unknown origin. So basically, once you see something like this in a tooth and you go in the next level and you get more in-depth, zoomed-in x-rays, right? Yes. Then you have a clearer sense of the nature of it, but mostly the protocol would be to take it out and to put in a partial in the meantime. Correct, but this uh, leaves out a few things. Okay. It's kind of like if uh, if you're going to fly from uh, Los Angeles to Denver, you get on the airplane and fly there. Well, there are a few things that are required. You know, building the airplane, you have to train the pilots, you have to have runways. All these things have to be done for a tooth as well. Now, when you touch that tooth, now here's one that's fearsome. Uh, when you touch that tooth with the gentle forceps to remove the tooth, instantly those bacteria are going to go in the bloodstream, and they're going to start looking for a new home. And the primary places they look are brain, heart, liver, kidney. And then it can go to a bunch of others if it has a preference. But those are the waterfront properties, so to speak. Um, but this can be uh, the... And this is called a bacteremia, which means bacteria in the bloodstream. And uh, this can be helped a great deal by taking intravenous vitamin C while you have the tooth removed and then continue it for a few hours afterwards because that has the ability to break the toxins in half. I mean, bacteria is one problem, but the problem with the bacteria is the same problem as with a loaded gun loaded gun isn't really too dangerous until you pull the trigger. Well, the bacteria, when the trigger is pulled, produce toxins, and the right. toxins are what destroy tissues. And this is what can be handled by intravenous vitamin C. You know what's interesting? I cannot figure out how I got this because I take good care of my teeth. I have my teeth cleaned every three months. I don't understand how that could happen in the front. I don't eat processed foods. I drink a lot of water. I take supplements. I don't get it. You ever do boxing? Play hockey? No. Baseball? Somebody hits you in the mouth with a baseball? No. I have drank from a glass a couple times, and as I brought it to my face, hit my tooth. Well, the important thing is that it's there. You could have done something, uh, turned over and hit the bedside table at night when you were asleep and went right back to sleep and didn't know it. Trauma is one thing that does it, but... If you want to get real picky about things, there's something else that will do it that also has an answer. Uh, you mentioned getting your teeth cleaned every three months. Right. I don't want it to be said that uh, Huggins says never clean your teeth, though I've had mine cleaned once since I graduated in 1962. 
But if dentists or hygienists look at them, they say it looked like they were cleaned within the last two weeks. Well, you know, as a dentist, I know a little more about how to keep calculus and stuff like that away. But there's always bacteria sitting around in the mouth. Now, if these bacteria are sitting in the mouth, they really are not very dangerous, are they? Well, they can be. If. And the if there is if they get in the bloodstream. Because in the mouth, these bacteria are reasonably harmless. But the mouth has a pH of something between 6 and 7, which is the measure of the balance between acid and alkaline. Alkaline, right. Now, blood has a pH of 7.35. Now, these bacteria, when they go into an environment that has a pH above 7, certain genes are turned on. And even though, you know, I've been working in this field actually since 1958 when I entered school, I only learned this within the last year working in our DNA laboratory, that these bacteria can get into the blood and that's what stimulates them to create certain bacteria, certain um, certain toxins, some of them specialize in dissolving bone. So this is beginning to pull things together. If you get your teeth cleaned and the gums bleed a little bit, you have a two-way street. And this means that the bacteria in the mouth can go in the bloodstream into your surrounding bloodstream, but if it kind of crawls down around that tooth, and if it happens to be one of these two or three bacteria that dissolves bone, it can crawl all the way down to the root tip and start dissolving bone. So what do you do? Never have your teeth cleaned? No, but there is a preventive measure that costs probably less than a penny and can prevent things like this from happening. And that is take a little Ziploc bag or something with some salt in it when you go to the dentist. When you have your teeth cleaned, as soon as the dentist or the hygienist is finished cleaning the teeth, immediately go to the bathroom and put uh, about maybe a half a teaspoon of salt in the palm of your hand, lick it up, and uh, with the other hand put in maybe a tablespoon or so of water. And then the important part, rinse aggressively so that the salt water goes in between the teeth and kills the bacteria because you know a lot of people have sore throats once in a while what do you do you gargle with salt water how long does it take before it feels better yeah two or three seconds why does salt kill bacteria that's part of its job description <laughs> uh, it changes the <laughs> you sure you want to know this yeah. Elective permeability of the cell wall. The cell membrane lets certain things in and certain things out. And that's why most of our body is contained within cells. Well, when salt hits it, it ruptures that uh, cell membrane, and uh, whatever it touches is dead if it's in the line of bacteria. So it kills it practically on contact. If you look back uh, a couple hundred years, three or four hundred years when they had a lot of sailing vessels. You know, if a sailor did something bad, uh, they flogged him with the cat of nine tails, which is a whip that had uh, nine pieces of leather on it. Well, that hurt, and it cut up the back, and you were going to get infected and die. Well, the captain didn't really want you to die, so they sprayed salt, sprinkled salt all over your back. 
well, it hurt like the dickens, but you didn't get an infection. So that's what you want to do at the dental office is prevent that infection from going into your bloodstream. So you rinse aggressively for 30 seconds or a minute, and when you get home, do it again. And this is going to add a great deal of protection to an area that people don't think about. You know what? I just thought of something. You know when they're cleaning your teeth and you have to drink water and spit out whatever is there? Yeah. People could be rinsing with salt water, right, while it's going on. Hey, you are brilliant. You get three extra credit points. Do I get three credit points? Yeah. I mean, that would seem to be very helpful. Yeah, that would help the patient a whole lot. And it doesn't cost anything to do it. But what it is saving you from is tremendous because, you know, anybody's going to get some, some bleeding from cleaning their teeth and some bacteria getting into their bloodstream. And this is all published in the literature that, you know, from removing a tooth, from cleaning your teeth, you're going to get a, what's called a transient bacteremia, that is for several hours, not several days. You're going to have these bacteria traveling around looking for a new home. So why not kill them before they get on the highway? Well, since I didn't wash with salt water after or during my treatment, a week later, what do you recommend somebody to do? Well, at any time, I actually recommend uh, first thing in the morning, rinse with a salt, okay. salt water, because it kills the bacteria that gives you morning breath. You may not know what that is, but some people do. I clean my tongue every day, twice a day, morning okay. and night as That's- well idea going on here and the rinse so you're getting in between the teeth and getting the gums and you're going to have a whole lot less problems with uh, all of your life if you do that because it's getting rid of a big sort of uh, non-recognized source of all these bacteria. Now you have an MS from the University of Colorado in toxicology and immunology I know you graduated in 1962 from the University of Nebraska, and you were involved in mercury toxicity in human health in 1973, where you started to look at those correlations. Yes. And, you know, I know that you've written tons of books and have DVDs available to the public. And because of your whole system's approach to dentistry, which has gotten your license revoked, and I want to say that so that listeners are not shocked when they go online and they see adversarial things about you to understand that you've been pioneering something. Tell me if I'm correct. Did your inspiration start from Dr. Weston Price? No, uh, he actually didn't come into my life until about 1985 and 86. But uh, historically, briefly, in uh, 62, I graduated in 60, and I was taking postgraduate work every three weeks for the first 10 years of my practice. And I never quite felt I had a, went to a very good dental school, and uh, we had hospital internship, and we just had things that nobody else had. But I still felt I didn't have a grasp on it until I took a course from Dr. Arnie Lauritsen in 68. And I took another course from him. And um, in fact, as an aside, I went up to him at the first break, the first day at 1030. And I said, Dr. Lauritsen, I'm going home now. And he said, why? This is a five-day course. And I said, yes, but I have my money's worth and I don't want to cheat you. Because he was brilliant in telling you the basics of dentistry that I had not been able to learn and everything else. Eventually, I wrote his textbook. And uh, when we're about halfway through, he said, 
by the way, you're going to write the chapter on nutrition. That's chapter number one. I said, I don't even know how to spell it. I don't know what you're talking about. I can't write a book on the chapter on that. And he said, you go see Melvin Page, you go see Emmanuel Saraskin, and you learn about nutrition. And that turned my life around for the first time. And I learned about the blood chemistry in relation to uh, dental, controlling dental decay and gum disease. And then in 73, I was lecturing at an international conference in Mexico and showed a slide that and now, you know, this doesn't always work because sometimes, you know, here's a case of massive gum disease. I know everything about the chemistry. I need to know. I know how to correct all of these problems that are in the chemistry. The only problem is it doesn't work. And Dr. Olympio Pinto came up from the audience and uh, after it was over, and he was from Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, and he said, that's because of the mercury coming out of the silver fillings. I said, mercury can't come out of the fillings. It's bound with the alpha phase, the gamma phase, the delta, and all this stuff. But after about 10 minutes, I shut up and started listening. That's when I started learning. And he said, well, you know about blood chemistry. Why don't you go home and just do a simple CBC, the red blood cells and white cells. You do one, you put in some amalgams, you do a follow-up a couple of days later. Then you take some out doing follow-up, doing chemistries before and after, and then call me. Well, within three weeks, I had given away all of my materials, all my equipment for placing amalgam. And it took me three weeks to decide that mercury was poisonous, and it was very obvious in the blood chemistries what it was doing. So after a few of these, I think I had a dozen cases, I went to the dental association and said, hey, we are poisoning people with this stuff. The mercury comes out, and look what it does to the chemistries. And they decided it was easier to eliminate me than to eliminate mercury. So they came up with about 150 different challenges against me, uh, which boiled down to three or four things, which were, number one, I refused to place amalgam, refused to refer somebody for amalgam. Uh, well, nobody ever asked, but this is what the bottom line was. And I refused to do root canals. And I wrote a book that they didn't like called It's All in Your Head. And many of my patients have been told that their problems are all in their head, implying psychological. But I found their problems were all in their head, in the lower third of the head. <laughs> Continue. That's where the title came from. And that's when the war started. Um, because now... You know, they did. They said 12 cases and not enough to prove anything. Now I have 300,000 data points of blood chemistry information on people before and after removal of all these toxins. And they still say, well, there's no data that proves that mercury is dangerous. In fact, they have been quoted to say, yes, mercury is the most hazardous metal on the face of the earth. However, in the mouth, get this, in the mouth, its toxic properties are rendered harmless. I told that to the professors at the University of Colorado, and they got a good laugh out of that and said they must have discovered alchemy. <laughs> well, the American Dental Association has also lobbied to put fluoride, a neurotoxin, in our water supply and give fluoride to people in their mouths. So obviously they're on the wrong side of science. Well, they're on the right side of economy, and that's a big thing because... Kim, do you have any idea what the what the financial liability is to dentists for placing this when the dental association has known since 1840 that it was
the Dental Association destroyed itself in 1840 over the argument of should we use mercury because it's cheap or should we not use it because it's poisonous. And it was almost 50 years before the Dental Association uh, revived itself, uh, claiming that mercury was safe and starting to use it again. That was Amalgam War One. Then in Europe, there was Amalgam War Two when Dr. Alfred Stock found that uh, he was a scientist in Germany and he found uh, all kinds of diseases related to mercury. And then the war came along and one of the bombs happened to fall on his laboratory and blew it up. I think that kind of discouraged him and he was getting up in years. So that was the end of Amalgam War Two. And 1973 marked the beginning of Amalgam War III. In 73, they were replacing one million amalgam. That is, amalgam is the 50% mercury filling, silver-colored filling. They were replacing a million a day, and now they're down to just a little over 100,000 a day. Well, that's a big improvement, but there is still a whole lot of people getting contaminated with mercury every day that don't really have to. So when you became vocal about the connection between mercury toxicity and human health in 1973, it kind of began your downfall until 1996 when they took your license away. I want you to explain to the public why you're down on root canals and why you feel they're at the root of so many diseases like autoimmune diseases, focal infections, and why you wrote the book Root Canals, Savior or Suicide. Well, I figure that it is time for the public to be informed. Now, there are a lot of things running around that are toxic. Uh, does anybody who smokes think that smoking is good for them? No. Really get down to it? No. Does anybody who drinks excessive amounts of alcohol think that that's a safe thing to do for their health? Not really. But they do it anyway. Why? It is their choice. I feel that the public should be informed and be able to make an informed decision. Now, the Dental Association, now I have... <laughs> I have articles that the Endodontic Society sent me back in about 1992. I said, you know, I keep hearing about how safe root canals are, and I do a lot of root canals, or I used to do a lot of root canals, and, uh, yeah, I need some answers for this. And I'll be happy to pay for reprints that prove that root canals are safe. I said, oh, you don't have to pay for it. We'll send them to you. And they sent me probably a 100 articles. Well, I read them. And there wasn't one of them that proved that it was safe. There were a lot of articles that said root canals are 90% safe, 95% safe, 97, that's where they are now, saying that they're 97% uh, 97% successful. But there is no definition of the word successful. Primarily, it means freedom of pain. Give us a sense of what a root canal is. What is the essence of it? Explain it to the public. Uh, that is a really good idea, Kim, because... Of all the people I've talked to about it, very few people in the public understand what a root canal is. I've had them say, well, can't you take the root canal out and leave the tooth in? Well, the tooth is the root canal tooth. The uh, tooth is kind of like um, the old Dixon Ticonderoga pencil that we used in the first grade. And the lead in the center uh, represents the pulp chamber. So there is a nerve chamber in the center of the tooth. And what the dentist does is to drill a hole through the crown of the tooth, the part that's up in the mouth, and drill this hole down into the pulp chamber and then 
clean out the material that is in there, and they tell the patient they are sterilizing the tooth. Well, what Weston Price came up with recently, that is in 1909, is that there are about 75 auxiliary canals just in a front tooth. Well, there's no way you can get into those 75 canals. And then there are also dentin tubules. The tooth, the root of the tooth is composed of lots and lots of little tiny pieces of spaghetti is what it amounts to. And there, if you hooked all of them together, they'd be three and a half miles long just in a front tooth. Well, there's no way you can get into that and clean it out, although they claim, well, we have some strong chemicals that will penetrate all the way through. Well, there's no such thing. Uh, from the standpoint of physics, you can't do that. <clears throat> they say, well, we have laser, and that kills everything. Well, it doesn't kill everything. <clears throat> but the real problem is, as the bacteria create their toxins and get an excess population, it goes to the outside of the tooth. The tooth has enamel, and under that is dentin, and inside that is this pulp chamber. But if you look down in the bone, you don't have enamel. You just have the dentin and the pulp chamber. Well, the tooth is not really directly attached to bone. There are fibers that come out of the tooth and fibers that come out of the bone, and they intertwine to form something called a periodontal ligament. That's a ligament that really attaches the tooth to the bone. Otherwise, you couldn't get the tooth out. Well, this is where the maximum concentration of those bacteria occur. And then, you know, we're doing DNA analysis. We've worked with this the last four years. We found that the tooth has a certain amount of bacteria. If we crush the tooth, we've got a certain amount of bacteria. But if you scrape off the ligament, if you cut it off, it has even more bacteria and toxins in it. And then after about three years, it finally dawned on me, you don't suppose this goes into the bone, do you? I guess I'm a slow learner, but... Anyway, I followed up on that, and we started taking blood samples, and good grief. The blood samples around, you know, you take the tooth out, let it bleed a little bit. The blood there is highly contaminated with these bacteria. In fact, this is another part we were talking a little while ago about the treatment. This is another part that is extremely important. When you take the tooth out, just to be silly so that a dentist will remember this, I tell them, take the patient by the heels, hold them upside down, and shake them and make that socket bleed. Well, they may forget about making the socket bleed, but they always remember, take them by the heels. As soon as that tooth comes out, they get a mental image of picking the patient up, which means let it bleed, let it clean the bone around that tooth because that is highly toxic, and that has not been sterilized by any means. So the tooth comes out, you take the suction, put it in there. Uh, you take a burr, you cut out the periodontal ligament in the bone. It's kind of a complex procedure, but so is landing a 747, but it doesn't take but a few seconds to get it on the ground. It only takes a few seconds to clean these sockets out properly. And then allow it, force it, make it bleed, and you don't need a transfusion. Hey, you're taking out maybe a teaspoonful of blood. But that's going to speed up the healing by six months minimum. 
So you let all of that come out because you've got all this bacteria. Well, the bacteria has been sitting there in the periodontal ligament, and every time you bite down, squirt, that goes into your blood system. And this is what I think people have a right to know, that any time you're chewing, you're chewing gum, man, are you doing your body some some real harm. Or if you eat food, now, somebody's going to say, well, Huggins says don't ever eat. Well, either that or take the root canal tooth out. It's your choice. But when you bite down on these teeth, it squirts that bacteria out into the blood, which we have tested and found to be very rich. Hey, out there in the bone, you got... Uh, smorgasbord out there. I mean, not only you got great desserts with sugar in them, but you've got uh, T-bone steak and um, <clears throat> coleslaw, and there's just everything in the world that bacteria could want to survive. But the bacteria and their toxins go into your bloodstream to every place in the body that blood goes which is every place in the body. Many dentists and people will also say who've been to dentists who told them this, the last thing you want to do is remove the tooth. That's right. Always try to save the tooth. Now, where did that come in? Is there any validity to that, and what do you say about that? Well, if we go back uh, 100 years, 100, 150 years, so when they started placing amalgam, uh, the story was you got a cavity, you can scrape the, the decay out and fill it with a combination of uh, mercury and copper and silver and tin and zinc, and hang on to the tooth for another five or ten years. Well, that's when, before it has reached the pulp chamber. And so, yes, it is better to have a tooth with a filling than to have to have the tooth removed because they didn't have anesthetic back there. And taking out a tooth was traumatic. Take a tooth out without anesthetic, that's why they had eight people holding you down while they did it. And it's better to fill a tooth, and then, of course, they found that maybe that's not exactly true because the mercury is poisonous and creates autoimmune diseases. Well, an autoimmune disease can happen from mercury or root canals, either one. And if you're saving the tooth, you're doing it at the expense of what? Your whole body. Yeah, you may have diabetes, you may have heart disease, you may have cancer, you may have Alzheimer's. What do you recommend, Dr. Huggins, to fill the teeth when people have cavities then? What are you recommending? All right, what we do, when I was at the University of Colorado, we developed a test against the immune system. You take the patient's blood and uh, test it against the chemicals that are in the white fillings, the composites, the plastic fillings, and see which ones react with your immune system and which don't. And there's a very good reason for this because... Um, a toxin, a bacteria, is a certain size, and the immune system produces antibodies, which are a certain size. Well, if you put the two of them together, they bond, and they make something twice the size of either one of them. You try to push that through the kidney, and you've got little tiny tubules in there, and it gets hung up. Same with the brain, same with the heart. So you are creating little tiny little tiny dams in the circulatory system, which if they're a little bigger are called strokes. Um, but this is not a real good idea. So you need to have the composite place that does not form these complexes. A complex is a term that describes where you've got the uh, immune antibody and the toxin combined together. 
So the important thing is to select a composite that is not reactive with your specific immune system. And there are 70 or 80 different chemicals in the various composites, so you do these and find out there are, what, maybe 2,000 composites on the market, and probably 1,200 of them would give you a problem, 1,200 would give me a problem, but they're not the same 1,200. So if we do the compatibility test, then you find out which material can be placed that does not, that challenges your immune system minimally. I mean, there's nothing that's perfectly safe, but a 5% challenge is a whole lot better than a 95% challenge. The devil really is in the details, isn't it? Uh, Yes. If you leave something out, uh, leave out one little portion, there are a whole lot of things involved with taking out amalgam. We developed a protocol over the years, and you leave out one of those steps, you might as well have not done the procedure. I mean, there are a lot of people who call themselves biological dentists, which means I'll take your fillings out for a price and not give you a guilt trip. But you ask them to look at, you know, what we just talked about with you earlier, look at the CBC, the red cells and the white cells, say, look at the CBC, and I had one of them tell me one time, well, how do you spell that? Well, if they don't know how to spell CBC, they certainly don't know how to interpret challenges to the immune system. You know, Dr. Huggins, 99% of the dentists out there are not whole systems dentists. You're talking about whole systems dentistry. Dentistry as it relates and communicates with the whole body, right? Right. Yeah. So talk to us about the fact that in a root canal, you're trying to basically save the tooth. Can you go back to why that isn't effective or what your issue is with root canals? Well, the issue with the root canal is it's dead. Now, the Dental Association argues with me on that. They say they're not dead, they're non-vital. Well, if you look (laughs) up in the dictionary the term non-vital, the definition is dead. But the whole thing boils down to liability because no other part of health professions puts dead things in the body. And the body has a um, has a surveillance system within the immune system and it checks all your cells every day three times a day and it looks for a code there is a code a five digit code on your cells and you don't find that on a risk canal tooth because it is dead so it starts an autoimmune response autoimmune means auto is self well, what happens is you get dead things on this tooth and the immune system looks at it and says, this is not self. This is non-self. The same thing happens with mercury. You put mercury, a atom of mercury, on a nerve cell, it is non-self. So the immune system attacks it. Well, it's attacking a nerve cell, and that's why they call it autoimmune. The immune is attacking self. It is attacking what is registered as non-self, but then we call it multiple sclerosis, Lou Gehrig's disease, seizures and tremors and things like that, and kill the immune system. Well, that's like, hey, we can stop the war in Iraq in one day, kill all the American soldiers, the war would be over. That's what we're doing here. The immune system is our soldiers. Don't kill them off. You know, I spent four years taking immunology, and I love those little white blood cells. And I don't want somebody killing them off, because that's all we have to keep us alive. 
So it sounds like it's a question of reducing the amount of bacteria, not getting ultimately rid of bacteria because it's not going to happen. What exactly are you looking for? Well, what I'm looking for, yes, reduce the amount of bacteria. But there are a whole lot of things that we have not even touched on. I have time and I've made time. Whatever you want to do, I'm here. All right. Well, this is another thing that relates to this. What you eat determines whether you're going to get tooth decay or not, and it has nothing to do with touching the tooth. Ralph Steinman out there in Loma Linda did some, published 70-some papers on this, where what does sugar do? That gives you decay. So he took uh, rats, which have the same type of uh, process in forming dental decay that humans do, and he fed them a 62% sugar diet, which is like candy bars. And they developed X number of cavities. Then he took the same amount of sugar and put it through a stomach tube so it did not go through the mouth. He got the same number of cavities in the rats. Then he took it and injected it just into the body cavity, not even into the stomach, just squirted it into the body cavity by injection. Same number of cavities in the mouth. So there's no way it comes anywhere near touching a tooth. But what he found was that there is a protective fluid flow that goes from the pulp chamber, when it has a nerve, through the dentin, through the enamel, into the mouth, and this prevents bacteria from coming into the tooth, creating decay. But if you are eating the foods you should not eat, then this fluid flow turns around and becomes a suction and it's pulling bacteria from the mouth into the enamel, into the dentin, into the pulp chamber, which can give you root canal problems, can kill the tooth, or it can give you decay. I have a quick question here. How do you know that that paper that he wrote about fluid flow is not just a theory? How do you know it's a fact? Because he wrote 74 of those papers at the University of Loma Linda over a period of 15 years and he used radioactive acroflavin hydrochloride to trace the fluid flow and found that it was under the control of the parotid hormone produced by the parotid gland in the cheeks. You didn't think I knew the answer to that, did you? Actually, I thought you would know the answer. I didn't realize <laughs> it was so heavy. <laughs> See... For the audience, I want them to know the level of what you know. I want them to have a flavor for this. Okay. Well, there was another fellow, Dr. Melvin Page, who got me started in blood chemistry. He was on the other side of the world over in Florida, and he was doing blood chemistries, and he found when the blood phosphorus level that we talked about with you a while ago drops below 3.5 milligrams, that you have decay. If it's above 3.5, you don't have decay. Well, what he was seeing was another way of determining which way the fluid flow is going without using radioactive materials. And we have found through the 42 years of my experience the same thing. People have a low phosphorus, they got a lot of decay. If the phosphorus level comes up, they don't have a problem with decay. But if it keeps going up, then they have inflammatory conditions, like certain people we talked about earlier with a phosphorus of uh, 4.5. Then there is inflammation. Is it in the gums? Is it in the joints? Is it in a tooth? This is where the professional has to come in and determine where is this inflammatory condition coming from. But the blood chemistry tells the story. How fascinating. Well, it is. I'm glad to hear you use that word. I've worked in it for 
over four decades, and I still find it <laughs> fascinating every day. Why are they giving children, teenagers, root canals? I don't get that. Don't tempt me. I'm tempting you because my girlfriend's son, who's 17 years old, just got three root canals in Montana, and I just about flipped. Okay, you want to get into this in depth? I want to get into it in depth, and what I want to front load you with is the following. I know that kids live on massive amounts of sugar, so I would understand why their teeth are a mess, why they're seeing many more diseases, okay? Between not flossing, using the wrong kind of toothpaste, not being hydrated enough, living on Coke and bad drinks and food, I could get that on a nutrition level, okay? But why the doctors are so quickly giving them root canals at such a young age when their immune system isn't even strong enough after what you've been saying to sustain it, I don't get it. You ever heard the word quota? It's really hard for me to fathom that. It is for me, too, because um, as I understand it, um, in 1990, the uh, Dental Association set a quota of 30 million root canals a year by the year 2000, which they accomplished by the year 1999. How are they able to set a quota? Why would they do that? No, really, why would they do that? Isn't that a conflict of interest? It's called preventive dentistry which sounds very religious. Okay. Okay. Anyway, they reached that, so uh, I have heard that now the quota has been increased. But I see this in the patients I talk to, like one I talked to just a few days ago where I think it was the hygienist or the assistant said, we're going to schedule you for a root canal. Well, had the doctor even looked at your x-ray when the hygienist said you need a root canal? First of all, it was a new doctor, and my doctor had sold his practice without me knowing. So when I went in to get my teeth cleaned, and the hygienist saw that my front tooth was pink in the back, and the doctor came in, and he'd only been practicing dentistry for five years, was already talking me into a root canal. But what was weird is my tooth is totally vital, and he couldn't figure out (laughs) why my tooth is vital. He did that test with freezing, you know, putting freezing material on the tooth, and I almost jumped out of my seat. Yeah, well, that means that the nerve is alive. If you put, well, I remember as a kid biting into an ice cream cone, and good grief, I think I did the Olympic record for the standing high jump. (laughs) So we called an endodontist that they work with, and the endodontist said, I want to see you come in here. And they were trying to prepare me for a root canal that day. I said, absolutely not. But the anomaly of the tooth being, quote, vital, the nerve being vital, but they still were pretty much ready to do a root canal. Well, there's a friend of mine who um, had his root canals removed, and he was, well, his brain wasn't working too well. He was head of the uh, largest uh, invasion the Air Force had ever done in Vietnam. He was the head man there, so he's pretty smart. And uh, he could smile a lot, but he couldn't really carry on a conversation. Well, we got, I think it was five root canals out of him. And, uh, you know, there's a a large service club here called um, Rotary. And um, he became the uh, managing director, whatever they call it, of that club, which is a huge responsibility, and he had lots and lots of things to keep on his mind, and he just had a tremendous personality. None of this did I see when I first met him. And so, you know, there's a total change in him. 
Now, when he had the teeth removed, he had temporary bridges put in. Well, he called me one day and he says, you know, his tooth's a little sensitive up here. And I said, okay, uh, close very, very slowly and tell me where the first place is it touches. He said, well, right there on that tooth. Well, the tooth was getting the force of the bite on one tooth instead of spread around. So I called a friend of mine and I said, can you just kind of go on the temporary and uh, I think his bite will be fine. He says, yeah, I know what you're talking about. That's fine. So he called for an appointment and uh, the secretary said, well, what do you need to come in for? Well, I've got a sensitive tooth and I think it just needs a bite adjustment. No, you need a root canal. I'll go ahead and schedule you for a root canal. And I am hearing this maybe not every day, but darn close to it, where people are doing root canals just because you would think they had a quota. Well, sounds like maybe they do. They're trying to save teeth. But what they don't realize is that in the studies we've done in the last three or four years, we have found 28 different bacteria in root canal teeth that are associated with heart disease. We have found about 23 associated with neurological diseases. And... Uh, Going back to the 17-year-old, okay, here's what he's got to look forward to because that's close to the break-even point. 18 years is the break-even point. With a male, if you do a root canal on one of the four front teeth at age 18 or below, <clears throat> the testicle on that size shrinks to half the size of the other one. Some people listening to this are not going to believe you. Well, I really don't care. What I'm doing is putting the information out there, and, uh, you know, there are people who don't care that alcohol creates a problem, that smoking creates a problem, and I don't care. It is your personal decision. But I think people have a right to know that if, uh, well, take females, the tooth next to the front tooth, the number two from this center, <clears throat> you do a root canal on that, and I don't have a figure because this is not something I ask every woman that walks by, but they lose their ability to have a sexual climax. And if, 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 if you do all the procedures proper in taking the tooth out, that can come back again. Well, you know, we shouldn't be having sex anyway. But some people think you should. Is this something that is significant? If it's you, it is significant. Are you also looking at the body meridians? Do you have acupuncture stuff involved in your protocol or in your thought process with this? Are you dealing? Well, you're right on half of it. Okay. Not in their procedures, but in my thought processes, yes. Because somebody brought this up to me years ago that breast cancer happens when you got root canals on the bicuspids, on the bicuspid meridian. Well, what's a meridian? Well, it's this invisible electric wire that runs through the teeth and the rest of the body. Yeah, yeah, sure. And as I begin to study root canals and kind of isolate them into heart disease and breast cancer and MS and ALS and so on, it became very obvious that, uh, yeah, for a guess, it's pretty good that most women who have, working backwards, most people, most women who have breast cancer have root canals or have had root canals on their bicuspids. And you start looking at it, and even though there are four different uh, techniques of figuring out what the meridians are attached to, it's become very obvious that they're attached to something. And all four of them do agree that the uh, reproductive system is attached to the forefront teeth, upper and lower. So we've worked with cases of sterility. I've got 53 couples who have children now who were sterile beforehand. 
and root canals are part of that problem. Can you go back to the 18-year-old and what are the ramifications of those root canals? You started one with the first point. Go ahead. This is something somebody asked me about, a patient asked me, and I said, well, I didn't know anything about it, but this was, oh, we're talking back in the 1980s. Then I started asking men, and uh, yeah, some of them had had that problem and some of them didn't, and it pretty soon became evident that age 18 was the time. Now, there are men who have had root canals on both front teeth who have still fathered children, so it doesn't necessarily mean sterility, although the sterility in high school seniors in a publication that came out not too long ago was close to 20%. Well, there's more to it than just root canals, but root canals are something that I feel you should know about. You have a right to to be exposed to it. Whether you believe it or not really doesn't matter, but by the time you've heard it four or five, six times, and by the time it happens to you, then you believe it. I have had physicians and dentists who criticized me 30 and 40 years ago, criticized me very heavily. Then what do you think happens when uh, there's some disaster in the family or in them and the medical profession can't handle it? They become receptive. They come to me. And then they become, quote, believers. So you're the dentist of last resort. (laughs) Simply because they have tried everything else. Yeah. When you've tried everything else and it doesn't work and you decide you don't want to die, then that's, I mean, I used to kid about the patients that I saw had seen 32 doctors before they got to me. Well, you know, if you've had a heart attack, you're not going to have to go to 32 doctors to find that out. If you have a broken leg, the first doctor or two is going to figure that out. But if nobody can figure it out, then look to the mouth because the mercury is poisonous to any cell that it touches, and the root canals, uh, the ones that we have done, root canals and cavitations, we're, we've done about 500 now, and uh, we find 100% of those areas are contaminated. You know what? There's a myth going around in dentistry, traditional dentistry, that when you first get your mercury amalgams, everything is very dangerous and at risk, but... As time goes on, you're at less of a risk. That's what a dentist told me, that it wears off. Well, I hadn't noticed that because the amount of mercury coming out of the filling continues. When all the mercury has gone, it turns to sand and falls out. But uh, it's slowing down? No. We have not seen evidence of this, and we have instruments that will measure the amount of mercury coming out of fillings. And we have uh, measured fillings that were like 20 years old and find they have 5% of the mercury left. Well, what happened to the other 95%? You went all over the body. Now, Weston Price did some work with um, Mayo's. Maybe you've heard of the Mayo's Clinic? Of course. Well, Mayo's has pretty decent reputation. And working together, they found that they could take a root tip from somebody who had a disease and had a root canal, they take the root canal tooth out, take that root tip and plant it under the skin of a rabbit, and within a few weeks the rabbit develops that disease, and in particular with heart disease, it could be transferred 100% of the time. That what they would do is take out the tooth, take off the root tip, stick it under the skin, and in approximately two weeks, the rabbit would die of a heart attack. Then they would take it out of the dead rabbit, put it into another rabbit, 
and in approximately two weeks it would die of a heart attack. And they would do this for 30 rabbits. And they found that heart disease was transferable 100% of the time, and the ones that didn't transfer very often still transferred 88% of the time. And they did this study on 60,000 rabbits. Now, my story, my take on that story is that they were working in Cleveland, Ohio. And uh, because of Price's Works, that's why they have no rabbits in Ohio. For those people who already have whatever, whether it's one, two, or eight, or ten mercury fillings in their mouth, whatever they have that's still there, and no matter how old it is, is there something that you recommend to chelate out the mercury in the body until the rest of the amalgams can come out? I do it. I have an illustrator who's done some wonderful drawings for me, and he has a drawing of a fellow standing in the shower, and the water's coming down, and he's got a towel drying off. Well, does this hurt anything? No. But is it doing any good? No. So, yeah, you can, uh, well, chelation is a whole different uh, barrel of snakes. But if you, you know, if you take out 10 micrograms a day and you're putting in 20, uh, what benefit are you doing? You know, if I look at the blood chemistries, if you've got a problem, I don't really see that taking out what's in the bloodstream for that few minutes uh, is going to change anything in the chemistry. You've still got the problem. You've still got the attack to the heart, to the liver, to the kidney, to the brain. When you look at the blood chemistry, let's say my blood chemistry, which is in front of you for four months ago, yeah. what do you look to to see mercury impacts? The whole chemistry, because in some people it affects the calcium and some the phosphorus and some the cholesterol of all things and some protein metabolism and some it's liver function, some it's kidney, some it's red cells, some it's white cells. Uh, I don't know what your genetic weak link is, but your blood does. All I have to do is learn to recognize in the blood chemistry where the variations are that shouldn't be there. Are there many people that are able to recognize those patterns in blood chemistry the way you can? Mm, what do you mean by many? Well, I mean several handfuls in the U.S. Mm, probably not. That's scary. Because if you do that, the Dental Association will take your license away. There are certain things that are extremely important the electrical charge on the filling. If you take out one with uh, a positive, they're like little tiny batteries. All right, if you take out one that has a positive electrical charge on it, um, first, if that's the first filling that comes out, uh, this is going to stimulate some of the hormone-producing glands that are in charge of degeneration, which you don't need at that time if you're sick. And if you take out one with a negative electrical current, you stimulate the opposite four endocrine glands, hormone-producing glands, and you go into regeneration. Well, in the state of Colorado, if you use that instrument, they'll take your license away. I'll let you figure out why that is. It should be pretty simple. I haven't figured it out yet because what that does is encourage disease and prevent healing. And Colorado is the worst state in the United States as far as, as taking away a license of a dentist if he ever shook hands with me or did any, said anything bad about mercury. 
if you say something bad about Mercury, all they have to do is send you a letter saying you lost your license, you cannot be relicensed in any of the 50 states. That's a tragedy. So you ask why dentists don't get into this. It's because if you're trained as a dentist, you're not trained to do anything else. Can dentists quietly do these other protocols as part of their practice? Yes, we do have a team around the nation that um, that do this. They are really gutsy. They will stand. In fact, uh, there are a couple of towns in California that have banned the use of mercury, or it has been a proclamation signed by the mayor. I just got an email on this uh, yesterday, and <clears throat> they're trying in another city and they were going to have the meeting for the signing of the uh, proclamation, and something like a hundred dentists uh, came up in arms saying, no, we've got to keep poisoning people. No, no, that isn't what they said. We've got to keep placing mercury. You cannot tell us not to place mercury. And so they had to postpone the meeting, and now the mayor's having to sit there listening to a hundred dentists say that in the mouth its toxic properties are rendered harmless. California is a leader. Uh, The state of Maine has done some things. The state of Washington and Oregon, I think, have done some things. And then there's something called the United Nations. Maybe you've heard of that. (laughs) United Nations has a committee on addressing the problem of mercury because it's poison. And they're trying to ban its use uh, around people worldwide. And uh, they've had three meetings, one every six months. I think they've got one coming up in Nairobi in about two months. And um, uh, 18 months ago, dental amalgam was the last one on the list that they were considering of the areas where mercury should be abolished. And for the one coming up in Nairobi, thanks to the work of uh, Charlie Brown, an attorney in Washington, D.C., and a whole bunch of people out in California, Um, it is now number one on the list. So there are 120 countries who are considering the banning of mercury, like uh, Sweden was the first one to do it, and there are several other countries that have followed suit, everybody except the United States. Wow. It's also true that in the United States there have been many, many cancer cures that are illegal and doctors go to jail for using these protocols and a lot of these protocols are alive and well in Europe and other parts of the world. It's a similar scenario. Right. Do you think that dentistry is very expensive? And I find it interesting that most insurance companies don't want to pay for it and don't want to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Most people are not in a position to deal with dental problems. Do you think that dentistry, using your protocols and your whole system's approach to dentistry, will become more affordable and less expensive Well, uh, I was approached not very long ago to go to an island not too far from here and uh, set up a system. We used to have a system here with 76 employees that we treated patients from all over the world. And we were having tremendous success rate, which, of course, is why they shut it down. Um, But they're trying to do this in some other countries now. Some of the smaller countries, especially with economic depression, would uh, welcome having people come in. And the dentistry there could very easily be done for 50% of what it's done here. But it's interesting to me that uh, I know when I first went into practice, a one-surface filling, amalgam filling, I got $5 for doing that. And my neighbor sold Cadillacs, and Cadillacs were $6,000 at that time. 
And um, <clears throat> now Cadillacs are not 6000 but 60000 So add a zero to it, which means a $5 bill filling should be $50. But they're not. They're $250. It's ridiculous. It's so ridiculous. Dental fees have gone up tremendously, and the expense of running the dental practice has gone up tremendously. Do you think it's due to regulation or overregulation? What do you think? I don't know. Okay. Politics I've never been able to understand. In biological dentistry and whole systems dentistry, I want you to share what is typically and traditionally done when crowns are put on a tooth. Well, traditionally, the thing that bothers me is that uh, a few years ago, 85% of the crowns that were placed, which is a metal covering over the whole tooth, were made of nickel, which is the number one cancer-producing metal on the planet. Uh, mercury kills the cell, and nickel makes it cancerous. So which would you rather have? Um, now, with the cost of gold going up to a bazillion dollars an ounce, um, I'm having dentists call saying, what's the only thing I can do here? And I said, well, the only thing I can recommend is the gold that is uh, about 90% gold, 10% platinum, something in that vicinity. And I said, well, the price of gold is so high that uh, we can't afford to, to charge a patient just for the materials anymore. So everybody's going to nickel or some of the other things that may or may not be healthy. But... Um, if you want to see an increase in cancer, a uh, combination of root canals and um, rounds is certainly the best way to get there, and that's the biggest financial institution in the United States is cancer. So, yeah, that, that is creating a problem. I do not see the way out at this time. Uh, partial dentures used to be made out of nickel, and I don't know, 10, 15 years ago they started using other materials. What is a partial? A uh, partial is it's short for partial denture. A denture, uh, by definition, uh, includes all of the teeth. A partial denture means you've lost anywhere from one to three-fourths of the teeth, and a denture that covers partially all of the teeth is placed. So a partial denture... Well, most of them probably have about five to ten teeth on them, but there are certain cases you can get more than that on a partial. But a partial just means you do have a few of your own teeth left. Can you use a partial for one tooth? Yeah, mm-hmm. right. And are you saying that whatever metal's on it, it should be gold? Is that what you're saying? Well, that would be the best, but okay. um, actually my preference is plastic. If it is clear plastic, the pink color of the plastics that's used in dentistry, the pink color comes from mercury for the most part, uh, mercury or uh, cadmium. Both of them are toxic metals, but that makes it pink. But if it's clear, you see through it, the tissue underneath it's pink, so what? Um, so I prefer the clear plastic partial to the metal. Why? Because you've got less metal. The metals are not particularly healthy. The plastic is a whole lot less of a challenge to the immune system. And um, I prefer either one of those to a bridge. Now, I used to specialize in crown and bridge for 16 years. So, hey, I've had a lot of training. I know a lot about crown and bridge. But I would recommend something removable because when you put in a bridge, you're cutting down the teeth on either side of it. 
And that means you don't have the fluid flow through it, and so you don't have quite as healthy a tooth. But, you know, it's, it's a compromise. And uh, some people would rather have a bridge than a partial. But if you have a tooth removed and you wear the temporary partial for uh, three months, you're going to know whether you can get along with them or not. And if you don't like it, it's like glasses. I have three pair of glasses sitting on the desk in front of me. What do I have on my nose? I don't have glasses on it. I don't like to wear glasses. I don't like them hanging on. Well, some people feel that way about a partial denture, and they'd rather have a bridge that is cemented in. So here again, I believe in choice. Do you want a bridge? Do you want a partial? Do you want a denture? Okay. Do you want to take a chance with root canals giving you heart disease and cancer and breast cancer and shrinking your testicles and all this sort of thing? If you want to take that chance, that's fine as long as you are informed. What is your relationship with Weston Price? Did you ever meet him? No. Uh, he was a little older than I. <laughs> he died in 47. Okay. And I was about 10 years old or so in 47. But there is a very interesting story that happened to come out of California. Um, I was lecturing in California. And um, a little man came up to me, and uh, there were two or three hundred people in the audience, and afterwards about half of them came up with personal questions. And so I was just bombarded with this, bing, bang, bang, hey, hey, what, what about this? What and I was really getting kind of brain strained over it, and somebody kept pulling on my sleeve. And I looked, and this guy standing over there, and he says, please let me have one of your business cards before you run out of them. Okay, he says, I have something very important I want to send you. Yeah, okay, thank you. And six months later, I get this huge box, and there's no return address because it comes from a place, I think it was called Boxit or something like that. It took a while, took several months before I found who sent that to me, and I got a very interesting story. This was a close personal friend of Weston Price. Price called him to his bedside when he was dying on his deathbed, and he said, you know, I feel I've done a good job on nutrition, and I'm very pleased with that. But with root canals, I spent 35 years trying to convince dentistry to quit doing root canals, and they're doing more than they've ever done before. So I've put together this steamer trunk full of materials that kind of lead up to where I am with root canals. See if you can find somebody that can be stimulated to carry on my work and give this trunk to them. And 40 years later, in Cal, it was given to me. So <laughs> I opened it. I didn't know what it was. I was taking my postdoc at the uh, University of Colorado, and I had been told, do not submit any kind of an article with references more than two years old because they're of no value. Okay. So I look in this box, and here's stuff from 1900, from 1910, 20, 30, so it is of no value. Okay, so I didn't pay much attention to it. And later I had um, occasion to go, somebody asked a question on root canals. I said, hey, I got a box of stuff that had something to do with root canals. Let me check it out. And I opened one of Price's books, and I read three pages. I've never done another root canal, and I was good at them at that time. I was killing lots of people. And that... Wow. My life around again. So, you know, California has been involved in my life on several occasions. 
but that's my connection with Weston Price. I felt that he was uh, like a little leprechaun sitting on my left shoulder saying, pay attention to this page, and I'd read it, and he was so scientific and so thorough with everything, I couldn't understand it. And then I'd hear the words again, read the page again. So I'd read it again. And sometimes after three or four times, I would get the idea of what was going on. He did some of the most fantastic research ever done. And finally, it was 15 years before I could add one word to his research. Wow. Now, with the work in DNA, I feel, okay, I was the right choice. I have been able to pick it up and carry it on. But he did not have radio and television and YouTubes and emails and all that kind of stuff to get stuff around, information around the world like we have today. And that's why I appreciate you, Kim, that you are helping this get out to, what, 25,000 people. And Thank if you a couple so much. thousand of them don't get root canals next week who were scheduled for it, it's been worth our time to get up this morning. I appreciate it. Would you share a little bit about the dentists in other countries as well? I know you have a great affinity for a particular dentist that does biological dentistry using your protocol in Germany, I think, and in Brazil. But what about the United States? Is there a list people can get going to your website? No. If you call us, we can figure out where you are, what your problems are, and try to match you with somebody. But if I would put out a list... Every one of those people would be visited by their dental association or state attorney general the next day, and they'd be selling used cars the next day. So do you want my telephone number? Let's give people your web address, first of all. Uh, web address, that's kind of a cautious place, too. It's pretty complicated. All right. It's uh, drhuggins.com. Okay. D-R-H-U-G-G-I-N-S. Uh, we can tell a few things there, but I have been threatened that I cannot tell the truth on my website. So there are some things there. Not that there are any lies there. It's just I cannot tell the whole truth. I can make some suggestions. I can say some things that we have seen. If I use the word opinion, it's okay. But supposedly the web is open. You can do anything you want to it. If that weren't true, you wouldn't have poor monography. But if your name is Huggins, you're very limited on what you can say. But our toll-free number is 866-948-4638. That's 866-948-4638. We can see about getting you in the hands of somebody who can do something for you, somebody who has been trained. I really want to thank you for being on the show, Dr. Huggins. Everybody, you can find out more about Dr. Huggins by going to drhuggins.com. Thank you so much for being with us, and I look forward to having you back in about a month and a half. There's more for you to tell. I know you're sitting on more. Uh, yes, and it's it's wiggling around. It wants to get out to the public. But, Kim, I want to thank you for helping us generate awareness. It's my pleasure and an honor. Thank you so much. It's rainmaking time.